0: So I would believe that scientific method would be the science part of data science. And the data could be biology, chemistry, physics, business data, economic, ecology. So I would believe that it's pretty much like a plug and play, like data could come from many disciplines. And then the analytic parts, the machine learning part would be to take that data and make it into an interpretable model.
1: What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Artists of Data Science podcast, the only self-development podcast for data scientists. You're going to learn from and be inspired by the people, ideas and conversations that will encourage creativity and innovation in yourself so that you can do the same for others. I also host open office hours. You can register to attend by going to bitly.com forward slash a d s o h i look forward to seeing you all there let's ride this beat out into another awesome episode and don't forget to subscribe to the show and leave a five-star review our guest today has a passion for data science machine learning bioinformatics research and teaching he's earned a phd in medical technology from Mahidol University in 2006, where he was awarded the Excellent Thesis Award by the National Research Council of Thailand. Among many other pursuits, he is also an associate professor of bioinformatics and the head of the Center of Data Mining and Biomedical Informatics at Mahidol University, where he leads a research laboratory that harnesses data science for unraveling the hidden knowledge of big data in medicine. In over a decade and a half, he's published more than 100 research articles, reviewed articles and book chapters, and has been invited as a visiting professor at many universities, including one I am very familiar with, Cal State Fullerton. However, you may recognize him from YouTube where he's gained nearly 100,000 subscribers across his two channels, the Data Professor and the Coding Professor. So please help me in welcoming our guest today, a man with a mission to educate the world about data science, the data professor himself, Dr. Shannon Nantasnamat. Shannon, thank you so much for coming on the show today, man. I appreciate you being here. I know it's quite late for you in, in, in Thailand. So I appreciate you taking time out of your schedule to be here, man.
0: Right. Yeah. Thank you for, for the awesome introduction. Yeah. It sounded like a, like a boxing match. Yeah, your your introduction is so cool. Awesome. thanks man
1: thanks man yeah definitely man you know i a hundred percent absolutely uh deserve it man because you put out so much good content so much good work man i remember using some of your resources to help overcome hurdles that i was facing when i was uh learning some stuff uh and stuff that you know i still come back to for for additional help on so i appreciate you doing all that before we get into some of your content and, and you know get your views on data science where data science is headed and all that stuff let's get to know you a little bit better talk to us a bit about where you grew up and what it was like there.
0: Right. So I grew up in in the US, in California, and actually in Los Angeles. So, and then like it was like about, I went there like when I was four. I went to elementary, went to high school, and then I took the equivalent examination, a California high school proficiency examination. I was just like the equivalent of a high school diploma. And then I went back to Thailand. I entered university and then I did my. I got my bachelor's in biological science and then I did my PhD in medical technology and then I've been a professor for the past 14 and a half years and I started my YouTube channel two years ago and yeah, so we're here today.
1: That's crazy, man. I didn't know you grew up in California. That's actually where I'm from as well. So I'm from awesome. Sacramento. Yeah, from Sacramento, California. And actually, I went to uh, Cal State Fullerton for, for my undergrad back in like, and I'm dating myself here, but that was like 2003, maybe 2003, mm-hmm. something like that. So quite, quite, quite a long time ago, man. that's, that's really cool. So, so what, what took you back to, to Thailand? Was that just, you know, family? I, I'm assuming like your background is, is Thai. Like what, what brought you back to, to Thailand?
0: yeah so like like at the time my my dad was in Thailand I mean he he migrated back to Thailand, my brother was in the university there, and so I had to migrate back to Thailand as well and then I did my college there. I almost had a chance to uh, go to community college at in Irvine Irvine Valley college and then planning on doing a bachelor's degree there at u c Irvine, like a transfer yeah but then we we moved back to Thailand first
1: yeah I, I i actually took a class or two at irvine valley college i think it was like a biology class oh or something cool just to right commit, yeah make up some some classes in between sessions because i was a horrible student and right. funked a lot of classes because i just did not go <laughs> <laughs> but so how different is your life now than what you thought it would be growing up
0: yeah so like when i grew up yeah so actually like like growing up i i was pretty pretty hooked to to the tv show bill and i the science guy and so I th- I think that I got motivated to to get into science be- because of that show. I mean, he, he's a very talented educator and, you know, at the time there were no such thing as YouTube. So I think that's like the most close thing to like, you know, science entertainment. Fast forward, you know, like be- at the time when I was starting my YouTube channel, like my daughter, she gave me an idea like, like, why don't you start a, a channel? Because at the time she was, you know, like watching some uh, kids YouTube channel. And then at the time I was thinking of a YouTube name. I mean, like my name is very, very long, like, right? So I don't think anyone would be able to remember that. And then I, at first I thought of getting a name like data guy, I think that someone had that name ready. And then, you know, like one day it just hit to me like, okay, I'm working as a professor, so why not data professor? And so yeah, I then I used data professor as my ID name on, on YouTube. And yeah. That's pretty cool. So I man. never never had thought that I would be a YouTuber. You know, like at the at the first, you know, like at the first impression there. It's like I could remember that some of my students were kind of like uh, surprised. It's like, wow, you're you're doing YouTube.
1: <laughs> That's cool, man. Your daughter is the one that kicked off the idea for you to do that. When it comes to like making YouTube videos, what is your most favorite part about making the youtube videos and what is the part that you just kind of like the least
0: huh okay so the famous my favorite part would have to be you know like making new friends like for example you uh, ken and danny ma you know like all of the great youtubers and it's always a pleasure to learn from all of you also from the awesome audience as well so you know like all the comments all the suggestions whether good or bad you know like i try to incorporate that and use it as like a lesson to to improve upon because you know like there's a lot of things that i don't know like content creation video editing graphics you know blogging you know all of that i I pretty much like learned from the internet as well yeah like making youtube videos by learning it from youtube
1: yeah that's like super meta that's super meta man so what about your least favorite part so what what part of it is uh the the toughest is it just that the the editing and and the blogging and stuff like that or is there some parts of it where you're just like oh man i I hate doing this
0: i i wouldn't say that i hate doing i mean i I don't think there would be anything that i hate about it but it's just like there are things that i think i could improve upon like at the beginning you're like my very first or a couple of videos it took me like a week entire week to edit the the video and then like over time i I pretty much like learn the tips and tricks i could maybe customize my keyboard and then you know like kind of like playing video games when you play video games you you have like keyboard shortcuts so i have that for you for adobe premiere pro like for example i would set my i would use only two buttons like the z and the x for cutting and for um, Ripple, Ripple, so after cutting, you know, like it, it'll combine the, the clips, you know, like just the two keyboard shortcuts. So I would use my mouse, you know, highlight the area, cut, Ripple, cut, Ripple. And and after that dabble, you know, like using Python to to do automatic editing for, you know, like deleting clips that are having like very low audio and then cutting that out, piecing it together. And I mean, that made my editing, fast it would take maybe 10 minutes for editing or 20 minutes
1: yeah man that's a that's pretty cool using python to clip out like the low audio portions that's uh right that's something that uh and I, I might need to get the source code from me for <laughs> to, to do that Sure, <laughs> that make life <laughs> a lot easier so let's get into kind of bioinformatics at first that's not something sure. that i'm very familiar with so mm-hmm. at, you know kind of like at a high level like what what is bioinformatics and how did you get into that
0: right so bioinformatics is you know like essentially you're you're taking informatics approach computer science in order to make sense of biological data and so you know like the term bio and informatics is essentially biology and the interface of biology with informatics and so how do you do that like for example you could develop tools you could perform data analysis you could you know like there, there's a subtle difference between bioinformatics and computational biology and like my, my good friend i've also tweeted about like a recent article that we published together his name is dr malik and so he suggested to me you know like there are subtle differences between bioinformatics and computational biology like bioinformatics would be computer scientists who develop bioinformatics tool and a computational biology or computational biologist would be someone who would make use of the bioinformatic tools that computer scientists have developed and then solve biological problems, make sense of biological you know, data. And so, yeah, there there are some granularity differences between the two. And so, in a nutshell, you know, like we we're, we're trying like for, for me personally, I'm trying to use bioinformatics, data science in order to design new drugs, so
1: for drug discovery. That's super fascinating. I would love to kind of you know get get into that yeah that's that's a great breakdown of what bioinformatics was that that really helps me kind of understand it. i used to be a biostatistician for 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 a while mm-hmm. so just hearing like the name bioinformatics biostatistics i thought maybe they're similar related but turns out they're actually vastly different from <laughs> from your description here i guess through that coursework that you did for bioinformatics it sounds like it really did set you up quite well uh, for a foundation in, in data science, was there like any additional upskilling that you had to do in, in, you know, machine learning or data science topics? And if there was any additional upskilling, what was your process like to, to acquire that knowledge?
0: Well, that's a great question. So actually, I've never taken any structured curriculum, even in bioinformatics. So all of that are pretty much self-taught. So I had my bachelor's degree in biological science. So it's, similar to a pre-med program. But the thing is, you know, like at first I thought I would become a medical doctor after my, graduate, after my undergraduate. But then, you know, like some of my friends, when they graduated, they went on to do. And for me, at first I wanted to change my degree totally. Like I was in my fourth year, I wanted to change to a computer science major. But then I thought to myself, I mean, I'm almost graduating. So like one more semester left, so I might as well graduate with a biology, biology degree. And so at the time, you know, like I, I, I was, I, I always have this passion for computer gadgets. I would like to build computers on my own and you know, like up, upgrade and build from scratch. And yeah, so I never thought that I would enter the field of data science. So it, it pretty much came to me after I graduated PhD, No, actually during my PhD, So like during my, my second year, I I came to know about data mining from a mentor who just graduated from RPI in the US. He was doing data mining research. And so that was back in 2005 I heard the term data mining and then from there he gave me a book I self self studied from that book and then during PhD there's a lot of self studying. You know like it's not like at the time data mining is such a new field, new new field even for, for Thailand and even I guess for the whole world as well. And so I, I, I pretty much like, you know, Google, there were no YouTube videos at the time. I hit the library, you know, like, I discovered that if I perform tutorials, you know, like from the first page into the last page of a book, it didn't really help, it, it didn't click. And so what it did was I selectively selected particular chapters that would help me to solve specific problems. And then based on my own biological problems, data problem that I would like to solve, I would Google for solutions specifically. And then over time, it kind of magically fall into place. You know, like I I didn't really have a structured approach to learning. So it's pretty much like, you know, like you have a problem, you Google for it, you find a solution, either from a book, either from an ebook, from a tutorial, and then you solve that problem. And then over the span of three years of the PhD, I would have solved maybe a hundred small problems. And then you know that hundred small problem, it it pretty much fall into you know like specific domains, and if you could cluster it, like for example, it'll fall into like data splitting, data clustering, uh, feature selection, machine learning algorithm selection. So it, I mean, if if you look back, it kind of structured into a well-defined area, and I, I think for for beginners in the field, I always you know like believe that it's always possible to break into data mining or data science if you have the passion for it like i mean the journey is not going to be easy so like the immediate gratification for me is you know like being able to solve the problem that gives me big joy and it's kind of like give me like this boost so so whenever i feel down you know like i would i would feel better if i could solve small problems and so for the span of three to four you know like hundreds of problems solved in a that kept me motivating and going. And at the time, you know, like being a professor for 10 years, publishing, it kind of felt a bit boring. You know, like things are becoming more repetitive. You publish uh, your paper, gets published somewhere. But then you're unsure whether people are seeing your work. It's like you're unsure whether the work that you're doing is anyone reading about it. You know, and so YouTube pretty much give instance Feedback, you know, like you, you publish a video and then, you know, there will be a lot of people commenting, suggesting, like, this is wrong. Like, you know, I would take that to improve for the future video or like the fonts that I'm using is too small. You know, okay, I'll increase the font size or maybe viewers would suggest some improvement to the code. And so I would also learn from
1: that as well. Love that approach that you took to learning. Like, I kind of call that uh, on demand learning. Because it is such a huge, broad field that it's impractical to try to learn everything all at once. So the best way you should learn is actually by doing it. So doing something, and then through the process of doing that something, you're going to inevitably face an issue that you don't know how to do, and then mm-hmm. you go research and figure it out, and then that's how that iterative, like learning, kind of happens. Maybe iterative is not the word, but you know, cumulative learning kind of happens that way. Uh, oftentimes. I get messages from people like, what kind of project should I do? Like, you know, what should I research? People message me all the time, asking me what they should research for, for their bachelor's thesis or master's thesis. And I'm like, I don't have an answer for you, Like, you need to find that answer out yourself. Like when, when people come to you with with this type of uh, question, you know, how do I figure out what project I want to do? How do I figure out what I want to research? What advice do you typically give to them?
0: Right, so I, I would give their the advice, like for example, everyone I believe they have their own strong points. no one is perfect. you know, like the thing is what are you good at what what domain are you coming from? let's say if you're if someone is coming from biology, then figure out a bio, bi- biological problem and then apply data science to solve that. I mean, if someone's coming from economics background, I'm sure there's a lot of economic related problems that they could solve. so if you solve something that pertains to your own field of knowledge that you have deep knowledge in. I think that will give you immediate gratification. I mean, like, you know, like immediate joy, if, if you could solve it. And I, I think it's about pushing the boundaries further and further. Like, you know, like there there's a lot to learn about. So it's always great to be able to have problems and then, you know, make solutions to that. And, you know, also sharing that solution to peers
1: and then, learn as a community we love that that advice because you're taking like previous knowledge that you've already kind of have a good core competency in and then you're yeah. using that to push yourself to learn something new so when you do kind of hit those moments of oh man like i don't know anything i don't like imposter syndrome moments then you're like oh actually i do know this thing i just need to learn how to take this thing and apply it to that right it kind of helps it with that momentum and helps with that confidence as you're moving through it Ah, uh, thanks so much for for sharing that. Now I want to get into you, you mentioned drug discovery a little bit earlier. Now let's let's talk about that real quick, man. Like, what what is drug discovery? You know, how are drugs discovered? In my mind, it's just like mad scientists in the lab mixing things into you know a pot and having right. all these things blow up. Is that like mixing chemicals and stuff? Is, is there more to drug discovery than that? Right. So I, I would believe
0: that that is kind of like in what's it Dexter? Uh, there's like a cartoon on Cartoon Network. Uh, so, you know, like imag- we would imagine drug discovery would be something like that, like a math scientist, right? But in reality, it's not like a one-person team. So drug discovery is a team effort and most likely is advancing very rapidly in, academ- in, in industry more. In academia, you know, like their progress will be a bit slower because of limited funding. Like big pharma, like what, Pfizer, AstraZeneca, you know, there, there will be teams of hundreds of scientists, you know, coming from traditional wet lab and also computational lab as well, you know, like working together. And, you know, to get a drug to market, I mean, one drug would come from maybe thousands of chemical ideas in order to come up with one drug. And the cost of getting that drug to the market, it takes at, at least maybe a billion dollars. And it takes more than 10 years to do that so yeah
1: where does data science kind of enter into the mix here like we're we talking about chemicals and and and, and right. stuff like that like how how does data science uh, kind of fit into the mix here
0: right great question so there's a field called cheminformatics so you know like in bioinformatics you have biology and informatics cheminformatics you have chemistry and informatics so actually I, uh, Sometimes I use it interchangeably, biology and chemistry mathematics are quite related. There's a field called biochemistry, you know, like chemistry pertaining to biological science. And so, so the thing is, you know, like if you could quantitate chemical compounds into numerical descriptor, that is where um, you, you essentially take the numerical descriptor and then you could apply machine learning algorithms. So essentially you apply the same uh, data analytic methods, the same data science process to that. So, so the the thing is to take a com- a compound a chemical compound, and then make that into a quantitative or qualitative description.
1: So, what's that data kind of look like? Is that like tabular data? Is that like uh, unstructured data? How how would we kind of just kind of t- have like a mental representation of how we quantify chemical data? Like, what would that look like if we were right. looking like at a table? What would right. the rows and columns so, be? I guess.
0: Yeah. Yeah, like for example, if you have a data set, like okay, you have the name of the compound,
1: okay, like for example, aspirin.
0: And then there's another chemical representation. It's called smile notation, S-M-I-L-E-S. I can't remember the full name, but it it, it essentially is a representation of a chemical structure in one dimension. Uh, like for example, C equal would be carbon double, oxygen would be O. So C equal to O would be carbon double bond oxygen and so it, it essentially tells the connectivity the atoms in a molecule and so if you quantitate that there's a, a python library called rdkits you could compute molecular descriptor out of the smiles notation and then once you have the molecular descriptor you apply machine learning to, to build a model
1: that's super fascinating man so do you have like any like interesting use cases or studies you can share with us that talk about, you know, the, the involvement of machine learning and drug discovery, like like a friendly, you know, easy to read paper or maybe one of your YouTube videos, if you, if you got something like that?
0: Right. Yeah. So my, my, on my YouTube channel, I have a playlist. I call it the bioinformatic playlist. And so in that playlist, I have several bioinformatic related content, like the the first few video in the playlist would be the first six video. I call it the bioinformatic from scratch series. And so that started from the basic, like how to collect your own biological data set from the internet. And like anyone, you you don't need to have a biology background. If you you just follow the tutorial step by step, you you could collect a unique biological data set. To, to make analysis on and in the in part two the part six I've shown how to calculate the descriptor how to build the model and finally how to build a, a web application using the Streamlit library and then eventually deploy that on Heroku or on Streamlit cloud
1: yeah, that's super cool I think I might actually do that so part of my job at uh, Comet is to create Ah, uh, cool projects using the Comet software because we do a lot of experimentation management type of stuff. So I think I might go through your YouTube tutorial series, build out a project, write about it, and stuff like that. I think that would be uh, awesome if, if you don't mind uh, if I do that. I think awesome. That's, that'd be would be really cool. Be cool. So, yeah, we'll we'll be in touch regarding that. Definitely. C- can machine learning in 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 drug discovery can that ever like bypass the need to run like a clinical trial? Is that kind of an absurd idea to have? Or is that is that possible? Have there been cases where that happened?
0: Yeah, so clinical trials is required, you know, like to to figure out like the safety of a putative drug in humans. So that would take a couple of years. It would have to involve enrolling several cohort of people to, to test the efficacy of the drug. But there is a, another area that data science could help streamline the entire drug discovery process, which is to, you know, to take existing drug that you have in the market, but then to find a novel indication, a novel therapeutic indication. Like for example, if I have a antibacterial, let's say I use data science, cheminformatics, and then I figure out another indication, meaning that I figure out another treatment that the antibacterial drug could be used as a anti-cancer drug. And so what that means would be I would be able to, you know, like save 10 years of drug discovery efforts because I would take an already FDA approved drug and then find a new treatment for that. It's kind of like teaching a dog a new trick. Because the thing is, you know, like when researchers find an antibacterial drug, they would have performed testings related to only antibacterial but then they wouldn't have expected that it would also have anti-cancer activity. So they wouldn't have had the opportunity to try that out. But let's say that if computers could be used to perform some sophisticated simulation, so aside from data science, there is a field called molecular simulation, molecular docking, molecular dynamic, and using app initial, using physics-based algorithm in order to show molecules and proteins, you know, coming together, binding, calculating the interaction energy. And so if via data science combined with molecular simulation approach, if we could find a novel treatment for the existing drug, then that would save 10 years.
1: Yeah, that's really, really fascinating. Do you know of, of anything that's kind of been released on the on the market that 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 has used this, this approach? Is, is it widely used? Is it commonly used? Or is this kind of something that's right now just kind of like a theoretical idea? That question can make Yeah, sense. so that's a great question.
0: Yeah, so there is a company called Insilico. And I think like in the past two years, they published a paper. I'm not sure about how, how fast it was. Like it was in a matter of months that they found an existing FDA approved drug And they found a novel treatment i i believe it related to antibacterial indication yeah i could find a paper and share with you yeah
1: Yeah. that'd be great man that's super cool like it's like a whole Mm -hmm. side of you know of the methodology that i'm familiar with that i've never like you know get exposed to so i think it's super cool how there's this combining of disciplines to create these really you know amazing use Mm -hmm. cases that are really helping humanity i think that's so cool man i mean speaking of you know helping helping humanity like the, you're on this mission to, to help people develop as as data scientists and and you know we talked a little bit about you know how, how we got into the youtubing but where did that where did that that spark to help other data scientists come from
0: yeah so so like for for my full-time job i work as a professor so one of my uh, you know everyday duty is to supervise or mentor younger researchers phd students master's student undergraduate student and also to teach and also to do research and so you know like youtube is another extension of my passion so i really i really like to teach and you know like, over the course of the past what 10 years before i went to youtube i felt like that you know like there are you know like Although I teach every semester, but then, you know, like after the semester ended, it kind of felt strange, you know, like, okay, it's like, okay, no more class, but you know on YouTube, it's like, you're, you're able to do it over and over again. And so, you know, like the fun never stops, you know, like party never stops. So, you know, like whenever I have something interesting that I heard from somewhere, you know, I would like to share it, you know, to the world and, you know, like being able to engage with the community and learn together. I think that is an awesome experience. And you know, like, even as a professor, I-, I never felt that I know everything. You know, there's so much that I don't know. And I'm very open to that as well. And so, you know, like I learned a lot from my students. I learned a lot from the viewers and, you know, learning is a very fun endeavor. And like, for example, I, I think I've remembered you know, here for the first time about experimentation, monitoring, I think Comet, not mm-hmm. ML, was it?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's that's where I work.
0: Yeah, yeah. awesome. Yeah, so like when I, when, for the first time when I saw that, I was like, wow, this is so cool. It's like, it's like you're, you're, you know, in biology, when you're doing experiments, you would track the experiment. You would keep a notebook, like a physical notebook. Mm-hmm. And what Comet is doing is essentially that, you know, like, but then you're able to monitor the, experiment of machine learning, model building, you could visualize, diagnose the model, feature, you know, like parameter optimization and all that, you know. The great thing is it's much more trackable and reproducible than the actual wet lab experimentation. And actually, two years ago, I've written a paper, a review article on the computational reproducibility of drug discovery projects. And in that paper, I I argued that a lot of the research in computational drug discovery, they're not reproducible. Mm-hmm. You know, like sometimes it's, you know, like sometimes it's not even in a Python or Jupyter notebook, some experiment or you know, like it'd be a point and click uh, GUI software. And let's say that if if I mistakenly clicked on the wrong button, then that would give, you know, give the wrong result. So it's not reproducible. And you know, like the, the things that comet is doing or other related tool, I think that that is a
1: game changer. So it's an interesting kind of idea something i've been wrestling with a lot recently kind of like a, i don't know maybe a philosophical i guess contention or mm-hmm. or or discomfort that i'm feeling is you know we call it data science but how much science is there in data science because i feel like there's really mm-hmm. two different two different breeds of data scientists there's data scientists mm-hmm. like like yourself that are actually like you know doing science and doing research but then there's data scientists who are In the business and you know they're in organizations and they're all business-minded type of data scientists Mm -hmm. um, you know uh, they they seem very different to me and and i don't know if the business side like the business data scientist type of people if they actually understand the science that they're doing like i I don't know if that where i'm taking this is is making sense but let me let me kind of reframe the question as where is the science in data science Mm -hmm. yeah so you know
0: like Like maybe from one of the episodes from Bill Nyes, the science guy, it would have to be the scientific method about the hypothesis forming. Like, for example, in business, you would have A-B testing. You would have some hypothesis. You would have some variables. You would have some variables that you fix. And then you would like to see whether that influences the outcome of the experiment. So I, I would believe that scientific method would be the science part of data science. And the data could be biology, chemistry, physics, business, data, economic, ecology. So I would believe that it's pretty much like a plug and play, like data could come from many discipline. And then the analytic parts, the machine learning part would, would be to, to take that data and then make it into an inter- interpretable uh, model. And, you know, like there, there's so much in data science, you know, like there's data collection. Before data can be collected, there's research experimentation, research design. I believe in biostatistics, there's so many, like Latin, what do you call it, square. stratification, like yeah, Latin yeah. square, yeah, uh, stratification, and you know, like sampling, you know, all of that forms the core of data science. And okay, then you have, okay, once you have designed the experiment, you have like you have to figure out like, okay, from which population you would like to sample your data. And then you collect the data. Once you have the data, then you would perform data processing. After that, you would do maybe feed extraction. Like in, in cheminformatics, you would take a small notation and then you would extract molecular descriptor. If in ecology, maybe you would have some geographical data. If in business, you would have some, you know, like click-through rate data or turnover or in business or, or in HR, you would have like churn rates. And so, you know, like the domain-specific variables, I would believe that they're all um, the same. If I borrow Shakespeare's, you know, like all the world's a stage. And like whatever the data it is, if you're able to represent it and it represents something... They're essentially the same thing, and then you could use analytic methods, machine learning, EDA. I think that's very important. You know, like recent times, I believe that there's like this hype over deep learning, but then you know, like the classical EDA, the the classical linear regression. I think it offers a lot of immense value. EDA also helps you to you know like make a lot of understanding of the data, and most of the time, you you don't need deep learning in order to build some meaningful data model. Yeah, EDA basic models would be very effective.
1: Yeah, thank you so much. I really appreciate you uh, like breaking down that that process for us. Something I've been really getting into lately has been <clears throat> has been deep learning. Like, I mean, not like an expert at it by any means, but it's something I've just been like intellectually curious about. It's it's really interesting, man. Like like the the methodology, you know, from doing a traditional machine learning problem or project to like a, d- a d- deep learning one the the process methodology i feel like is a little bit a little bit different i guess uh, have you worked with 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 both of those how would you say it's it's you know compare and contrast that if you would for us right
0: so like most most of the 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 analytic methods that based on our, our research project so we 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 don't really have uh much dive into deep learning so you know like our favorite algorithm like my my personal favorite would be random forest for one thing it 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 practically works on most of the tabular data and you don't need to do any feature tuning or parameter optimization and it essentially works outside the box and so another great thing i like is the interpretability of the model. So, you know, like when, when I'm talking to a biologist or a chemist and like the, the first thing that they would ask is what features or what variables are important. And so the best way to explain that to them would be to use random forest because it provides the Gini index that you could interpret. And another recent addition, very powerful, is the Shapley value. And there's the library called Shap and it's so good. I, I really love the visualization. Uh, that comes out of the library. And in terms of deep learning, I believe there's a lot of unique area, like for example, GANs, you could use it to generate new molecule. It, it could You could use it to train existing data and then you could generate a new molecule. Same thing as you could generate a new uh, human being, uh, like a photo of a, of a hypothetical person. Yeah, so same thing. It could be used to generate a hypothetical molecule that you know like chemists wouldn't have thought about
1: so that is an like awesome
0: yeah. area yeah generative yeah.
1: models are so cool man something that uh, i just like the interplay between deep learning and how it can help like augment human creativity there's there's this awesome book called the creativity code by marcus Stu satoy really really good book that talks about it's mostly about deep learning art and innovation the age of ai i'm actually interviewing the author of this book later this week awesome so if you guys are mm. ready, if you guys are watching live tune in on wednesday for that. So, Let's uh, let's talk about a couple of blog posts that that you've written. There's one that talks about how to learn anything and why it doesn't actually take ten thousand hours to to learn something. I thought that was mm-hmm. a great blog post. If you could talk to us uh, a little bit about that,
0: yeah, actually, I, I got that from one of the YouTube videos that I've watched, and I believe he he's an author of a book. And from pretty much, I, I pretty much summarized what I've watched from YouTube. And then he he's also an author of books. So essentially from that, it's like, there's a misconception that in order to learn and master something, you would need 10,000 hours. But then from, from the video, I believe that it was only what you need 20 hours actually to learn something, but then you, you, you would learn something and you would be able to do it at a, at a good level. But in order, to take ten, in order to become a master, that would require 10,000 hours. But in order to become good in something, 20 hours. Like, for yeah. example, to, to be able to play uh, in, in the video, he, he spent maybe 20 hours or so, and he was able to play some simple songs using the akulele. But then to be a master, like, like for example, to be a pro golf, you know, like, that would probably take 10,000 hours.
1: Yeah, it even like iterations, I right? just 10,000 tries at something I think is, uh, mm-hmm. that you know, the, that's kind of where the learning happens the most is just across the iterations where that learning curve really starts to to pick up for, for people because man, at, at some point, you got to just stop watching the videos, you got to stop reading the books and just start taking, you know, action, right? So speaking of that, like, is learning data science, the same thing as learning anything else? Is You know, do we need a more specialized approach to learning data science? You've got this this awesome post about seven effective tips for studying data science. I guess you could share some of those tips. I know that we've talked about a few of those uh, kind of throughout the episode, but we can uh, kind of condense it down here as well.
0: Right. Yeah. So, so like for for myself, I believe that I think there's this awesome concept about the open mind. I know. What's it? The open mindset. The growth mindset.
1: Growth mindset. yeah, Yeah.
0: Yeah. The growth mindset. Yeah. So like if you believe that you could learn something, you know, like it's just a matter of time, then, you know, if you're keeping improving one, 1% at a time, as you you have already mentioned, you know, like in a year, let's say, uh, for each day you aim to learn one new topic. So you're improving 1%. You know, in a year that would amount to what was it? 300%. So you're know, like, uh, I don't think there's a secret recipe to learning, but, but for one is I, I i really like to break things down to the individual components so like for example if you're working on a PhD thesis you know, like it, it looks like a formidable task it looks like a wow you know but then if you break it down let's say you break it down into okay you break it, break it down into data collection what will you need to do and then you you make it as detailed as possible in data collection but at the high level as well you have data collection you have data and uh, you have feature or uh, what data processing, you have feature extraction, you have machine learning, model building, model interpretation. And then you have model deployments. And let's say that okay, in the collection phase, okay, and then you make a list, which database would you like to collect the data from? And once you have already collected data, what do you want to do with it? And it's pretty much like you're, you're going into detail into the granular detail of that. And then let's say you, you make like a Gantt chart and then you could figure out like okay, for the course of the next two to three years, you make a chart and then you plan out your your time and then every week work on getting some percentage done. Like, like for myself, I would make maybe one iteration would be like maybe three months to, to get one paper and then you would iterate again, perform the same cycle again.
1: I like that approach is breaking it down smaller, smaller pieces and just manageable and then just attack mm-hmm. it. Just, just go for right. it. So, uh, there's publishing papers, man. Like that, that must be like a lot of like stress having to do that. Like, what happens? Like, if, like, how do you feel like if you spend all this time like publishing a paper and then maybe it doesn't get accepted, right? For example, uh, Jan Lacoon was talking about how he, you know, tried to submit a paper for Neuro Ips and ended up getting rejected. And he's like, you know, godfather of, of deep learning. I wondered, how do you, how do you deal with those type of situations?
0: Yeah. So, you like publication. You know, like the, the obvious first thing would be you have to get comfortable with rejection because 99 percent maybe it will be rejection and one percent would be acceptance. So if you're comfortable with failure, you're confident with, with rejection, then you would enjoy the process. Right. So the, the gratification would not be from getting published, but the gratification would be from learning and publishing would be an end product, would be some one. You know like of many things that you will acquire and in addition to the knowledge that you would have. but then you know there, there there must be publication as well like for example if someone is doing a phd or someone would want to be promoted to you know like assistant professor or social professor then getting published is also quite tricky as well you know like you would also need research funding You would also need to hire or talented individuals to pursue a PhD in order to help advance the the group research project. And so it's very, I would believe it it is a very stressful area if you're aiming to publish in order to flourish in the academic system. But then there is this joy of publishing just for the sense of finding uh, new knowledge so, so one of the one of the great thing in academia would be so you would be able to explore some area that would be interesting to you. But then, in my duty as the head of the center of data mining, so so not only that, then then I also have to manage the the center, uh, looking at the strategy, looking at the KPI, and so so there there are some granularity about that as well. So and yeah, I, I guess KPI getting funded publishing you know like you have to get at least how many papers per year i think that would be stressful as well
1: so yeah, yeah i can imagine man uh, but i, I like the, i guess the the main takeaway there when it comes to creating work and, and pushing that work out to the world is actually to just enjoy the process of doing the work itself and make the objective of learning and and writing kind of the, the focus of of your efforts let go of you know whether or not anybody's going to publish it. You know that's not up to you. Just let go of that, but just focus on doing the thing that that you are in the middle of doing to the best of your absolute ability. I think that's an important important point there. Let's let's start winding this down, man. Let's do one last kind of what I call a formal question, then we're going to jump into the random round. So this question is: It is 100 years in the future. What do you want to be remembered for?
0: Wow. 100 years into the future. Let's see, that's tricky. I'm not sure. Probably as a, I'm thinking, <laughs> I, I'm not sure. If I could find a niche in data science, contribute to that niche, that would be awesome.
1: Definitely. I think this, uh, the, the work you're doing here, bioinformatics with data science, machine learning, drug discovery, I'm excited to see where you take this and, and how far you uh, go down to this niche. Uh, let's go into a real quick random round here i guess first mm-hmm. I, I think a good question to kick off with is you know what when it comes to the future of yeah. of data science and machine learning what applications are you most excited about in the field of drug discovery or, or bioinformatics Like, what what kind of gets you hyped up when you think about it
0: yeah so so as i mentioned earlier on about the drug repositioning like the ability to use data science in order to find a new indication for drug. I think that is a very interesting area to pursue at the moment. Another would be using generative modeling to create new molecules. And another, I really like, like it because of the data visualization aspect, is to perform, is to apply graph network in order to analyze protein-protein interaction data, and also protein-compound interaction data. And like being able to visualize all of that would also be able to help perform data. uh, We call it uh, drug repositioning because of the interaction between, like for example, you have protein A and molecule A, protein B, molecule A. And then you you get to see all of that interaction in a network, kind of like a spider web, like the World Wide web, you know, like each website would be like one protein and how do they interact with one another? So all of that complicated interaction, if you could find a way to visualize that, in like in a graph network that fascinated me.
1: That's, That's super interesting. Definitely gonna have to look look into that. Drug repositioning, trying to clarify the definition of that. Is that when you find new applications, new use cases for a drug? Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So what are you currently reading?
0: Oh great. I'm currently listening to Audible Mastery by Robert Green. And you know, like the more I listen to that, it's like wow, it kind of hit hard, you know, like you're you're finding you're finding an area that you're passionate about, and you're exploring areas, you know, like without the, with, like you know, like the influence of other people, like 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 for example, growing up, my dad has a lot of influence on my education. Like me going into pre med program was also influenced by my dad. I mean, he, he practically you know like research all of the data. He he also did the same for for my brother as well. Like my older brother, he went to UC Irvine and then he went to UC Riverside. He did electrical engineering and then he did his MBA degree. And like for me, he also researched about biology and like exploring medical technology and and he suggested, okay, why don't you do a PhD here? Yeah. So yeah. So
1: yeah, that's just pretty cool. I love that book mastery. I've got, uh, that's like the book I've got on, I've got it on audible. I've got the full book. And then Robert Greene also has concise versions of his book, which are just real short books that, you know, like summaries of his book that you can read maybe mm-hmm. an hour or two hours. And that's one that I always go back to actually, uh, you should tune into the interview I've done with Robert Greene. I've actually uh, interviewed him.
0: Awesome. Yeah, yeah. Wow. I'll be, I'll listen to that.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's, he he said during that interview that that was one of the most interesting interviews he's ever had. So cool. That's my claim to fame, right there, man. What song do you currently have on repeat?
0: Wow. Ah, let's see. What song? Actually, not myself, but my my daughter, Blackpink. There's a new song called La Lisa. Okay. Uh, K-pop, K-pop okay. group. All right. I'm gonna Black, check that. Blackpink. Out. Yeah, Black Blackpink. Pink. La Lisa, right. and the lead singer Lisa is a Thai also.
1: that's awesome well check that out yeah i was like getting a new new music from from my guest to to tune into so now what i'm gonna do is i'm gonna open up a random question generator so let's go ahead and pull this up all right let's go for it first question here is what are your pet peeves
0: (laughs) pet peeves huh great
1: question not sure (laughs) (laughs) you're not you're not disturbed by anything no worries let's jump to another one then yeah (laughs) let's (laughs) Do you have any nicknames? Yeah, my, my,
0: my Thai nickname would be Earl. Earl? Earl, yeah. I like that. And, and the Thai way of pronouncing it would be earn. Okay. Like earn, nice. earning money, earn.
1: Yeah. Uh, what talent would you show off in a talent show? <laughs> talent show off in a talent show.
0: Alto saxophone? Oh, really? You play that? Yeah, I played alto, and I, I have a soprano at home as well.
1: That's awesome, man. That's pretty good.
0: Cool. During, during ban in fifth, no, in sixth, seventh, eighth grade.
1: Cool, man. Cool. When, when was the last time you changed your opinion about something major?
0: Oh, OK. Something major. Hmm. I think the perception of what is success, you know, like before, you know, like success would, would you know, like superficially like okay you have to advance in your academic career you know like okay getting a professor going going up the career ladder but then you know like i, I just figure out like you know it, it sometimes it doesn't really matter you know like it, it's just something that other people view you as but the thing is are you happy with that are you content with that so you know like, i learned to be happy with you know like the the uh everyday things in life and just being grateful, you know, for the friendship, for the opportunity, you know, like, for example, being here today, I'm very happy. <laughs> and, you know, like being in the moment, you know, like it doesn't require anything fancy and, you know, just enjoy life.
1: I absolutely love that, man. Yeah, I, that's something I have personally been wrestling with as well as kind of redefining my own definition of success to be more in line with what I Think is success rather than what the outward world mm-hmm. says is success and it's challenging man just mm-hmm. uh, takes a lot of introspection to to get to that point but i 100 percent agree with uh everything you just said so thank you so much for for sharing that if you had to change your name what would you change it to data professor <laughs> <laughs> right there on the, on the on the on the passport data professor i love it let's do one more here what's your favorite city
0: Huh, city of angels. Uh, so Los Angeles and also Bangkok. Nice. Yeah. So Bangkok, if you translate it in Thai, we call it Groom Tab. Krung means city. Tab means angel. Oh, I know. Krung cool. And and the English version of Krung Teb is Bangkok. Okay. And I, I've been able to live in both cities. I grew up in LA and you know, I'm I I, I was born in Bangkok.
1: That's cool, man. I didn't know that. That's that's an interesting bit of, I guess, coincidence there, going from one city of angels to the next. Shannon, right. uh, my friend, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to be here. How can uh, people connect with you? Where can they find you online if they already don't know how?
0: Awesome. Yeah, so I make YouTube videos, data professor and also coding professor. People could connect with me on Twitter. My tag would be the data, P-R-O-F. Um, also on LinkedIn as well. So. Maybe if I could provide the the links to that.
1: Yeah, we'll definitely put all that in the show notes so that people can uh, connect with you. Uh, Shannon, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to be here, man. I appreciate you uh, staying up late for us and, and joining us today.
0: Right, my pleasure.
1: My friends, remember, you've got one life on this planet. Why not try to do something big? Cheers, everyone.